On today's edition of Downstage Center, we feature a director, a critic, an actor, a playwright, an artistic director, a scholar, and a teacher, but only one guest. That guest founded two of the country's most influential resident theaters, Yale Repertory Theater in New Haven and the American Repertory Theater in Cambridge, all while serving as the drama critic for the New Republic, and all the while writing books about theater, ranging from the theater of revolt to letters to a young actor. Welcome to the American Theater Wing's Downstage Center. I'm Howard Sherman, Executive Director of the American Theater Wing, and I'm pleased and daunted to spend an hour with the multi-hyphenate Robert Brewstein. Welcome. Thank you, Howard. It's very nice to be with you. Bob, we'll, we'll start right at the beginning. You ultimately achieved a doctorate in dramatic literature or dramatic criticism? Dramatic literature. Okay. Um, but even as you were working towards a graduate degree, you were starting to make theater. Tell me a little bit about those earliest days of making theater. I was barreling around uh, between a number of disciplines. I'd um, gone to Brown for six weeks in medieval history following my college degree, left there to go to the Yale School of Drama, and left there after a year to go to Columbia, where I got my master's and my doctorate in dramatic literature. Um, but wasn't happy with Yale, but was happy with uh, a number of the students, and seven of us got together and founded a theater off-Broadway called Studio 7. And I've just found a reference to it by Harold Clorman, who called uh, our production of The Father uh, the off-Broadway hit of the, of the, of the season. Uh, and what season was that? It was 1951. Okay, just to put it in perspective. Right. And um, after that, uh, I went to Columbia, as I said, and would spend my summers with another theater that I... Uh, helped to found called uh, Group 20. That was made up of 20 people, mostly Wellesley women. And we started off as an amateur theater in Unionville, Connecticut, and then moved to Wellesley, Connecticut, a uh, theater on the green, and became a professional company. Wellesley Mass? Wellesley Mass. Yes. Uh, and they have an open space there, outdoor theater, where we performed outdoors, except on rainy days when we went indoors. And uh, we had some quite remarkable actors and directors working with us. Fritz Weaver was our leading man, and Sylvia Short, and Nancy Wickwire. I don't know if these names resonate anymore. Elliot Silverstein directed, Benno Frank directed. Uh, these were people from all over the country. And uh, I acted there primarily, uh, exclusively, in fact. Then after that, I kind of devoted myself to teaching dramatic literature at Columbia, for nine years, and I got tapped by Kingman Brewster in 1966. Well, before we even talk about you being tapped by Kingman Brewster, when did you begin writing for the New Republic? Was that while you were teaching at Columbia? Uh, it was while I was teaching at Columbia. I had uh, written a couple of articles for Commentary before Commentary became as right-wing as it did, uh, and one of them was on the inarticulate hero in American life, namely the Marlon Brando figure who was being imitated by any number of other actors. Uh, and I was comparing that character with the more vocal and verbose Odetsian hero, for example, from Awake and Sing, and trying to make some points about what had happened to American speech and American thought. And that uh, caused a big stir, that article. And uh, as a result, I was asked, by Harpers to write a series of articles for them. My editor then was Robert Silvers, 
who then went on to found the New York Review of Books, where I also started to write. And um, Eric Bentley was just leaving the New Republic, and they tapped me to be their critic in 1959. Uh, and I am still titular their critic, although I haven't written criticism for, their, for them since 2001 or two. Hmm. Um, so you're teaching... And you're working as a critic. We should say, if it's not already self-evident, you're not a daily critic. You're not, you know, you weren't covering everything out there, and you were writing for a publication that was looking for an intellectual level of discussion of theater that was above and beyond what most people think of a critic as writing today. I was a member of what we call the minority critics. Uh, these were people who wrote for the weeklies. Harold Kloman, Albert Brumell, Richard Gilman, uh, and our positions were generally very much to the left, um, aesthetically speaking, of, say, Walter Kerr, who was establishing theater taste in those days. But when you say to the left, are you speaking politically or just in culturally? Terms of culturally. Yeah, that we, we, were, we were more interested in, in a more advanced and avant garde theater than Kerr was. And uh, the big uh, turning point had to do with. My very first review, actually, which was of the Living Theatre's Connection by Jack Gelber, which uh, Kerr and all the newspaper critics had put down, and uh, us minority critics, we minority critics, uh, praised it as a real breakthrough in theatre. As a result, it ran for three or four years and was a, a great off-Broadway hit. Oh, and now if you look at anthologies from that period of influential plays, that's almost always there. It was an incredibly influential play, a very Perndellian play about a bunch of uh, uh, addicts sitting around on stage waiting for their fix from a character named Cowboy. And um, the, the movement in, off the stage and into the audience and even during the intermission was something very new for audiences there. And, uh, Living Theatre caught on at that point. It was before they went a little crazy on their <laughs> trip to Europe. Uh, and uh, there was a big off-Broadway movement as a result. And uh, we, m minority critics, were very much endorsing that movement. Now, to King and Brewster approaching you. So you are a critic, you are an academic, and you are approached to be the dean of the Yale School of Drama, which certainly was a position that it existed for some time. It existed since 1927 when George Pierce Baker left Harvard because they wouldn't give him a theater in which to do the plays of his students, his students being Eugene O'Neill, Philip Barry, Sidney Howard, uh, and he had a million dollars from the Harkness Foundation. He picked up with that money and went to Yale and founded a department of drama that later was to become the School of Drama. Um, so... Um, uh, that uh, had deteriorated. Uh, it's, it's been a playwriting program, and they'd only gotten acting and directing technical work uh, in order to accommodate and reinforce the playwriting program. And that was in poor shape at the time, and the playwrights, the playwriting program was in fairly poor shape. It had become very academic. Most people who went there either left after a year like Elijah Kazan or uh, uh, Paul Newman uh, or Robert Brewstein, Robert as you Brewstein, said. <laughs> I left after a year uh, and went into the theater. Or they finished the uh, program and generally became academics. They taught theater in, in colleges and universities. Now, it, it had reached a point where uh, people were criticizing it, it. And as a result, Kingman Brewster, who has just been appointed president at Yale, 
had heard about a book of mine called The Theater of Revolt. And the idea of revolt was in the air, and he thought I was a revolutionary of some kind. And um, so he asked me to come and revolutionize the, uh, the drama school. Well, in revolutionizing the drama school, you came up with the idea of a professional theater affiliated with the drama school, really as part of the drama school, what became the Yale Rep. At that time, were there other professional theater companies that were part of institutions of higher learning? No. There were uh, there were two equity actors connected to Stanford at the time, and that gave me the idea that you could connect professional theater people to in a, in a university setting. Uh, I also felt that there was no sense in training people for the theater unless they knew what they were training for. Uh, I didn't want to train people for Broadway. I don't think you know. Uh, that was the highest form of endeavor at the time. I thought the uh, once again the minority position had now uh, evolved into the nonprofit theater, and there were a number of nonprofit theaters accumulating around this time. Well, they were just beginning. Speaking in Connecticut, Hartford Stage and Good Speed were both 1964. Mm-hmm. The Rep was 66. Long, Long Wharf was, was 67. 65, I think. I think. I, they think they, I thought they were a year behind, but we're, we're right, right in that era. And funding from the Ford Foundation, which was very important to yeah. your theater and so many. Was, was we never got that. a penny from the Ford no? Foundation. No, they, oh, didn't, they didn't believe in so-called academic anything connected. Okay, with well, academic. they funded a lot of the not-for-profits. Rockefeller funded us, uh-huh. um, thanks to a grant by King Brewster. And I remember he said, "Come down. I'm going to get a grant for three hundred thousand dollars for you." I said, "I don't raise money." <laughs> uh, he says, "Well, we'll do that just just once." And that, of course, was the beginning of my fundraising career. I was going to say, because having read some of your books, you talk often about the need to find the money to do the projects and going out, that you couldn't hold yourself aside from from that part of the nonprofit. profit I actually business. became quite good at raising money and um, found all kinds of different ways in order to do it. But um, we did raise money for the theater. I believed at that time that, as I said, you couldn't train people unless they were being trained for something. And I thought if we trained actors for a resident professional theater company that was devoted to reinvestigating the classics and to finding new plays and new playwrights, then that would be the ideal situation. Uh, We would have professional actors who would be their teachers and people like Stella Adler and Jeremy Geit and uh, uh, any number of really gifted um, acting teachers came up. Bobby Lewis came up and taught, uh, and gifted design people and gifted directors. Uh, Jonathan Miller came from England, and um, uh, Arnold Weinstein came to teach playwriting, uh, that uh, they would lend their professional expertise to the evolution of young student talent. Uh, Richard Gilman came to teach playwriting. Stanley Kaufman came to teach dramatic literature. We had a quite wonderful um, faculty. And um, then we would train these people over three years. Whether they got an MFA or not was not of importance uh, to me. It, It may have been of importance to them. It would allow them to teach if they failed. But what was important, that they be trained in professional techniques and uh we were really training them for our company so that they would evolve through the training, become members of our company. You use the word company, and it's, it's important, especially in your history. 
most of the resident theaters that were founded early on were indeed company-based. The idea was that a group of artists would be in residence in a city at a theater for a period of time. They might be hired season to season. Um, That company idea did not sustain, for the most part, in the resident movement. And I'm wondering... I'm jumping ahead, of course, but you managed to sustain it through both Yale and ART. Why do you think it was so important? You're quite right that it started in the 60s, and Tyrone Guthrie, when he started the Guthrie Theater, was starting a company. It became a model, really. Um, Hart, the Long Wolf Company was a company. Uh, the... Um, Trinity Mer- Rep, Mer- Hartford, they all Trinity- were. American Conservatory Theater was very definitely a Absolutely, company. Bill Ball's company. And um, first of all, they complained that it was expensive. Uh, I don't think it was expensive. I thought, actually, it was economical because instead of inviting actors up from New York and paying for their travel and paying for their room and board while they're up there, you had actors working on more than one piece at a time because I believe in rotating repertory and um, who lived there and became part of the community uh, got their own apartments and um, played more than one role. So I thought it was an economic way to proceed, number one. It wasn't the reason we did it. But I believed in a collective, too. I believed that if people worked together over a period of time, they were like a ball team. And they learned each other's plays, and uh, they were uh, they were able to take shortcuts that um, strangers could not take in, uh, in, in, in their work on stage. In building that kind of company, you say that the students, ultimately you were training them for your company, but they were not wild cards, but but they were more changeable. You would have them for a few years. Maybe they'd stay on, maybe they wouldn't. How did the interaction of the professional company uh, affect the students and vice versa? The students had three different roles with the company during their three years at the school. In the first year, they did walk-ons. In the second year, they um, uh, did occasional supporting roles and um, understudy roles. In the third year, they often played featured roles. For example, Meryl Streep, uh, as a third-year student, played seven leading ladies for us. Well, you you did more than just feature. You you, you starred. I was shamelessly exploiting her talents, and uh, I was never forgiven by Sigourney Weaver who was in the same class and uh, felt that she had been overlooked and she was quite right. I did not feature her as often as I should have. But uh, I I could not keep my eyes off Meryl Streep, who as a young person clearly was uh, already uh, a very brilliant uh, actress. In terms of the effect, though, I'm curious, clearly students benefited from working with people who were already professionals and seeing a standard of both performance and professionalism. Did it affect the professionals to constantly have younger people in their midst who were still learning? It refreshed them. It pushed them. It gave them, uh, instead of settling into old habits, they were forced really to explore new techniques uh, as well as establishing this kind of mentor relationship with the with the younger person, um, this I thought this was an essential uh, relationship, uh, uh, which is not a classic American relationship of apprentice master. That's not d- democratic, but nevertheless, uh, it worked much better. It seems to me 
than the old system, which was represented, I should say, by Stella Adler, where you sat in the studio, you never acted, you just listened to the master teacher, you did a scene, you got sat down, you got to criticize, you did a scene. Bobby Lewis was the same way. It came out of uh, the um, American understanding of the Stanislavski system, which was a misunderstanding. I believe they should get that kind of classwork, but they also had to get up and do it. I believed in the practical idea of getting on their feet and doing it, and that's the way they would also learn. In terms of getting on one's feet and doing it, you did direct, uh, not necessarily every year at Yale Rep, um, but you did not seem to be fit the model of the artistic director who had a theater in order to express their own artistic desires. You would do a show once a year, maybe some years you did, some years you didn't. In fact, in the 13 years that you were at Yale, you really only directed about seven or eight shows. That's probably true, yes. So how do you define your role in the life of the rep and of the drama school since you were not um, you were not directing shows were you teaching classes? I was teaching both undergraduates and dramaturgs uh, I was mostly involved with the dramaturgy which began as a criticism program we were trying to develop more informed critics unfortunately outside of Michael Feingold none of them ever could get a job they were too bright but then it became a dramaturgy program and uh, I was teaching that, and one of my co-teachers, as soon as he graduated, was Rocco Landisman, who's now become the head of the National Endowment for the Arts. And um, I thought my function was to identify and encourage talent. I did direct certain plays. I had a fix on certain kinds of plays, and I thought it would be interesting uh, to be able to connect with a company. It was important for me professionally to have a professional relationship with a company. But it was more important for me to identify talent that could push the company in new directions uh, that they had not thought of before. That was particularly true with the American Repertory Theater, where we began working with people like Robert Wilson and Janusz Saz and Andre Serban, uh, whereas the directors at Yale were, uh, were really organized more towards actors than they were towards interpretive techniques. When you got to Yale, you were reviewing... Did you continue to be a critic? No, I stopped reviewing. Okay. Richard Gilman took over my position. Why did you make the choice to stop at that point? Well, I felt uh, it was inappropriate for me to be reviewing other people's work when I was creating my own, uh, a, a uh, principle that I completely abandoned when I went to uh, Cambridge. <laughs> you beat me to the question, yeah. and we'll talk about that yes. a little bit more. Um, we should also say, for those who don't understand the historical perspective, Coming to New Haven in the 60s, um, at the time when student revolt and change was flourishing on campuses, you were certainly perceived as revolutionary, you being the theater and perhaps the drama school as well, right down to taking up residence in a desanctified church which was painted in somewhat outlandish exterior colors. How much of the rep was a political statement at the time? Some of it. Um, by the way, the, the real scandal was our painting the green room in the university theater red <laughs> because we were I was known as the red dean and uh, it was assumed that I was some sort of a flaming communist as a result of that 
color scheme, which was very not at all uncommon in the Broadway theater. I mean, most hmm. most uh, theaters were a lot of theaters were red in um, in the Broadway theater, but this was taken wrong. Uh, a lot of things were taken wrong. The fact that a lot of us were named and had names ending with Stein uh, was perceived uh, to be a kind of takeoff by the, what was called the Jewish Mafia. Hmm. Uh, and we were... Um, I grew up in New Haven. I never met them. <laughs> <laughs> you met a few of them. But they were not old blues mm. uh, from Yale. So uh, we were perceived to be revolutionary in many ways that we weren't, whereas aesthetically we were revolutionary, and uh, that was not always perceived by the Yale blues. And there was a Vietnam War going on at the time, which a lot of us felt was an unjust war, uh, one that was killing a lot of innocent people, both Americans and Vietnamese. And uh, I was interested in plays that uh, confronted that war. In fact, the very first play we did at Yale was a play called uh, Viet Rock that the Open Theater had created. We had not formed our company yet, so I invited them up to do their production of Viet Rock, which was a satiric musical uh, attacking the Vietnam War, in which was a actor named Jerome Ragney who handed me a script called Hair and asked me if I would do that script <laughs> and uh, yeah, I felt that that was really more for Joe Papp who by the way was teaching at the school at that time <laughs> he, uh, he uh, was not doing well at the New York Shakespeare Festival and uh, I hired him to teach directing uh, which he did with Jerry Friedman at Yale and that's the year he founded the public theater <laughs> and began teaching less and less and taking all our directing students with him, like Jeff Blechner and Ted Cornell and uh, um, A.J. Antoon, and all those were directing students at Yale. Well, you know, you mentioned mafia, so not in the uh, organized crime sense. There ultimately came to be a sense that there was a Yale mafia that infiltrated theater and that had been infiltrating theater before you arrived and certainly remained strong, that the Yale connection was very important in theater. How do you respond to that? I think uh, that uh, Yale had an influence on, uh, I hope it had an influence on the rest of the theater world. Uh, a lot of our people started their own theaters. A lot of our actors went into the resident theater movement and joined other companies. A lot of the actors went into the movies or went to Broadway. And, you know, one must not forget the wonderful playwrights that came out of that program as well. People like Christopher Durang and uh, Ted Talley and any number of really gifted people, uh, AJ, um, Albert Inorado, uh these were very gifted people and um, they were getting their shot at Yale before they went on to other venues. Rereading Making Scenes, your book about the years at Yale, it strikes me that you write it as if the entire 13-year tenure was a fight. <laughs> and was it was it simply a struggle that all theaters face or was it a fight to do the things that you wanted to do? Well, I may have been exaggerating the confrontational quality of those 13 years, but uh, you know, we we had a lot of opponents. We had opponents in the commercial theater who thought we were too, you know, uh, avant-garde. We had opponents in the academic theater who thought we were not uh, true enough to the classics. Uh, I was, I and, you know, a lot of us were fighting battles on a number of fronts. Uh, and um, that's not unusual with any 
movement, with any artistic movement really, has to define itself in relationship to what already exists. And we tried to do that, uh, and it often got us into trouble. And I'm not known for my being private and uh, unobtrusive. And so, you know, I, if I saw there was um, confrontation somewhere, I would confront. Uh, and uh, that probably did not make as many friends, but uh, it, it formed a lot of loyalties and formed a, you know, a tight coterie of people who were able to, to have their influence on the American theater. What are you proudest of from the Yale years? From the Yale years, um, wow, I'm, it's hard to choose. Uh, Pick a couple. I, I, suppose, I suppose A Midsummer Night's Dream, Alvin Epstein's production mm. of A Midsummer Night's Dream, is one of my very favorite productions, and it's the production with which we opened the American Repertory Theater uh, when we went there in 1980. Um, I'm pretty proud of my own production of Don Juan uh, that was uh, uh, opened the church and uh, not only desanctified the church, but <laughs> did worse things to it <laughs> because we were doing black masses during this production uh, that I thought were appropriate for the story of Don Juan. Um, I love the premieres that Sam Shepard gave us, uh, which some of which you've seen. I, I have I've written that your production of Buried Child was the play that changed my life and made me want to get into a career in the theater. I'm very proud of that. Um, I was very proud of a production called The Idiot's Karamazov. Um, that that was co-written, if I remember correctly, by Inerato and Durang when they were students, right? And uh, starred Meryl Streep when she was a student. I'd seen it as a student production and loved it so much that we put it on the rep stage as part of our professional season. Hmm. Uh, and it was uh, to me an extraordinary romp through um, uh, through literature, really a satire on literature itself. Um, Russian literature, but also Ernest Hemingway is among those that wheels constant Garnett's wheelchair around the, around the stage. So I I love being able to find um, talent like that, whether it was playwriting talent or acting talent or directing talent or design talent, because we had some absolutely wonderful designers um, who are still continuing to um, give great distinction to the American stage. Mm-hmm. Finding talent, encouraging it, uh, giving it an opportunity, giving it a stage, that's what I thought my major job was. Now, we've spoken about the fact that you founded two resident theaters, but I remember from the time, and certainly in your writing, in some ways it's been your position that you founded one theater company, which had two physical homes. And two different names. And two different names. Um, Leaving... Yale to go to Harvard. On the one hand, you've written that it's something you'd been thinking about leaving New Haven, that you weren't sure it was that hospitable to the work you wanted to do. And then in many ways, the decision was made for you when a new president came to Yale and said that he wanted to enforce a policy that had been in place uh, in which a dean should only be at a school for 10 years. You were already past that. Um, do you still believe that it was the goal of the new president to get rid of you, or was it truly 
putting a new policy into place? Well, it's not exactly accurate to say I didn't think Yale was an hospitable place for the repertory theater. I thought that I didn't want to spend the rest of my life <coughs> doing that particular work. Uh, and I would have left uh, happily um, or gone into the English department because um, I was still a tenured member of the English department at Yale. But what started the confrontation there with my famously combative nature was the fact that it was being misrepresented. I actually had more than 10 years. Uh, I had another five-year contract uh, that uh, was not being acknowledged. Uh, and the reason it wasn't being acknowledged was because in private conversation with me, President Jamadi had indicated he wanted to change the nature of the Yale Repertory Theater in a way that I thought would destroy it. And uh, Can you describe what you perceived him as wanting to do or he said he wanted to do? The word I used was deprofessionalize it. He, um, and this is a problem in a university which is generally devoted primarily to undergraduates when it comes to the arts. Not medicine, not law, not business, but in the arts, um, undergraduates are, are meant to share uh, the graduate school's programs. Barchamati had wooed his wife when she was a drama school student and he was an undergraduate because he would go to classes at the Yale School of Drama. He wanted that to happen again. And by this point, our acting students were doing 40 hours of contact classes a, a week, and to have an undergraduate come and take two or three hours you know, as a course would have deprofessionalized it. Uh, and I was resisting this, and that was one of the reasons he wanted me to leave. But he then denied that he had made that. And his denying it got me upset, too, because it made me look like a liar. And um, so it blew up in the newspapers, uh, which it shouldn't have done. That was my fault. Um, and uh, But the publicity managed to stop the deprofessionalization so that when Lloyd Richards took over for me, uh, he took over uh, a school that remained professional. Now, your other question was um, about... Harvard and uh, well, it was really about the change. But let's let's move to Harvard, mm -hmm. which is once you made the agreement to move to Harvard, and was Derek Bach was the president at Derek the time. Derek Bach was the president. Did it give you new opportunities with the company that you didn't have at Yale? No, <laughs> I think you know. I think we had pretty much the same situation, except we had a lot less support financially from Harvard than uh, we had at Yale. We had the drama school, which I did not have to raise money. We raised money for it, but I had its own endowment. Uh, I would raise money for the repertory theater because we didn't expect Yale to have to support that. But Harvard did not have a single course in um, theater for credit when I went there. Not, not a single course, except perhaps for William Alfred's course in playwriting. And the same conditions that had caused George Pierce Baker to leave Harvard and go to Yale in 1927, they hadn't changed over all those years. Hmm. And what I offered was 12 courses for credit in the theater for undergraduates. And the momentum of our coming managed to have us put that through. That, that happened. But Harvard clearly was not going to give any money to the ART unless it was forced to. And at one point, uh, after three years, we had developed a bit of a deficit that Harvard helped to um, pay off on the proviso that we raise an endowment. 
At Harvard, it's every tub on its own bottom. We raised the endowment, $5 million, and the best thing Harvard ever did for us was invest the money and turn it into $25 million, because that's what they're very good at. Hmm. Um, And that's uh, how, you know, the ART has managed to uh, continue to function. Uh, on the basis of its endowment, on the basis of raised money from uh, foundations that respond to new plays and to new techniques. Uh, but that uh, ran into trouble with uh, my successor, who was digging deeper into the interest of the endowment as a result of a deficit than Harvard allows you to dig. And uh, that got him in a lot of trouble and ultimately got him fired. Mm-hmm. But um, Harvard, you know, the, the problem with Harvard at the beginning was I could not start a school. I thought you can't have a theater without a school for the same reason that, you know, we were successful at Yale through the development of talent. And by the way, the first company at, at the ART was the graduating class of 1979 at Yale. We brought them with us uh, with their teachers, Jeremy Guide and Alvin Epstein and, you know, the older actors who were also their teachers. Uh, we discovered a young actress named Cherry Jones, who became our leading lady. And, um, you know, we were off and running, uh, but um, we did not... I figured we could function for about five years before we needed that new blood that was going to keep the place from becoming static and uh, stultified. And uh, luckily, at the end of four or five years, I had found the word that allowed us to start a school at Harvard. And that word was institute. Uh, Harvard would not take a school. uh, It wouldn't take a department. But it did have institutes, the Bunting Institute, the Kennedy Institute, and so forth. And as a result, uh, they allowed us to have the the, uh, American Repertory Theater Institute for Advanced Training at Harvard, as long as we did not ask them for any money, and as long as we did not offer them a degree. I didn't mind the degree contingent, but uh, ultimately they did get a degree because there was a relationship with the Moscow Art Theater School where our students would go over, still go over there for three months in their first year, and they end up after two years with a MFA from the Moscow Art Theater School. But um, we we did have a two-year program, and we were trained in the same way that we trained at Yale with our students uh, functioning with the company, the company functioning as their teachers, and uh, having this symbiotic relationship. Uh, but the actual degree granting came from what, at least in the early years, was still the Soviet Union. It wasn't Russia quite yet. I think it was, yeah, it was after Russia. Oh, oh okay. Russia. Uh, 19, ooh, I think it was the late 80s. Okay. So, very, very interesting. You mentioned very early in this conversation that there were artists that you brought to ART that were very important in in the artistic definition of the company. They were not necessarily artists that you'd worked with at Yale. Was there something about the company being at Harvard that gave you more opportunity, or was it an evolution of your own aesthetic? Actually, Harvard was a much more conservative uh, theater atmosphere than Yale was. Yale was closer to New York. Harvard was further from New York and also a very academic. And when we brought Serban up, Andre Serban up to do Shakespeare and Chekhov in the way that he did, there was a big outcry, particularly from the English department, 
uh, as to our desecrating classics. Uh, and um, as a result, we began to create these panels and symposia, which we dis- brought it out in the open. We made it an academic discussion. We brought the English department, the French department, and so forth, onto our stage to discuss with us uh, why these plays were being done the way they were being done uh, with the director and sometimes with the actors. And that was very productive and uh, very enlightening. And I think we won a lot of adherence, or at least people who understood that we're not just drawing graffiti on the walls. Well, and you had the benefit of a PhD in dramatic literature. You weren't just some director who was running a theater. You had the intellectual heft to, to hold your own. You know, that that was very important. I had never intended to get a PhD in theater. The reason I got it, I must confess somewhat shamefacedly, is although I was a veteran of World War I being a merchant mariner, I was going to be drafted into the Korean War because they didn't acknowledge that the merchant marine, until very recently, the merchant marine were actually fighters and veterans. They weren't fighters, but at least they were functioning in a war. Um, so rather than go into war again, and a war that I didn't believe in, um, I got a degree. You, you could get um, deferments through your degree, so I, I got deferment after deferment and end up with a PhD, which I never would have gotten otherwise. But it was, as you say, a very important degree for me to have uh, in relationship to uh, to my academic uh, brethren. Well, working in those environments, certainly if you were simply running a resident company on its own and disconnected from, from an academic institution, certainly an MFA is not uncommon for directors who then become artistic directors, but in those environments, it's, it's sort of like you had your union card. They had, to, they, they had to respect where you were coming from. Absolutely. You'd said earlier that uh, once you got up to ART, you, you tossed away the idea that being a critic was in some way a conflict, and you returned um, to your role at the New Republic. You know, that, looking back, I, I realize that must have taken a lot of chutzpah, and it's been, uh, of course, questioned whether you can be a critic and run a theater at the same time. Um, I hope I was objective. I certainly, you know, have panned enough of my own productions um, uh, if they went on, uh, not, not actually in reviews, but at least in books. Uh, I, know which of, I think I know which of our productions were good and which were bad. Uh, but I didn't see any reason why I couldn't um, evaluate others' productions, uh, even though, you know, there was some question about them. Uh, there was one in particular when we did Night Mother. We did Marsha Norman's Night Mother, a, a play, by the way, that had gone to 40 theaters, all of whom turned it down because it was a play about suicide. It, I would have turned it down because it was not the kind of play that we normally would do, being um, a realistic kitchen drama with two characters, but... I was so harrowed by it that we had to do it. Uh, And having done it, when it went to Broadway, uh, I reviewed it. Not the production, because that was ours, but the play. Uh, I felt that was not necessarily off-limits to review a play, you know, which I had written. Our our contribution to it was the production. So I laid off the acting, I laid off the directing, I just explained why I thought that play was a great play. so that was the one time I really stuck my neck out and uh, took a little flack, uh, quite uh, understandably, for having reviewed my own productions, um, which I 
actually didn't. But. but what about the issue of collegiality? It's one thing to, if you chose to review or critique shows that, say, were playing on Broadway, that were commercial uh, endeavors. It's another thing when you're an artistic director to go into someone else's artistic home and publicly state what you think of their work. It's one thing to gossip about it at a TCG conference. I'm wondering whether that had an effect on your relationship with your peer artistic directors. I can't remember any... I, I never I never went to another theater in order to put it down. Um, I don't think I reviewed... Unless I really found something that excited me in another theater, I wouldn't write about it. Um, so it was not a question of my being competitive with other theaters. It was a question of my looking for material... Uh, that stimulated my you know, intellectual and critical capacities, so I could really praise it, um, evaluate it, not just, you know. And it was around that time that I was making a distinction between opinions and convictions, and uh, actually criticizing the kind of critic I once was, which was a Himalaya critic. Uh, uh, what do you mean by that? Uh, Danny Kay was once asked what he thought of the Himalayas, and he said, loved him, hated her. And it's that thumbs up, thumbs down kind of criticism that I I felt was no longer useful. That opinions, of course, you have to have opinions and people want to know what you thought of the play. But ultimately, a critic's real function was to analyze and uh, and make connections uh, in his or her discussion of, of a particular play or production. And I began to do that more and more and make fewer and fewer judgments. Hmm. You have written and spoken about your feelings about the relationship between the not-for-profit resident theaters and the commercial theater. Um, You just spoke of Night Mother, which was done in New York commercially. Um, Certainly from ART, Big River is another show. But overall, you were very vocal about feeling that the two were, were discrete institutions, discrete manners of producing, do you still feel that it is important that there be a separation between the commercial theater and the not-for-profit theater? More important than it ever was before. Because they're closer together, they are perhaps, than ever before. virtually identical now, and I find this is a, uh, a terrible blight on the non-profit theater, and it's affected its uh, adventurousness, it's affected its, uh, its whole development as a, as a movement. You say we had plays on Broadway. Those were not our productions. The plays. I was very careful to say yes. plays. I mean, there may have been... I knew I'd be in trouble. The, the case of Night Mother, they, they were the same actors and the same director that had been at the ART, but we did not produce it. Someone else produced it. That's different between having a producer come up with a production or a play, give you money to try it out, and then uh, have you, you know have a piece of it when it goes to Broadway. Uh, I don't mind the fact that, you know, a theater that's originated a, a play would get something back if it goes to Broadway, but, but I do mind that it involves itself in the production of it on Broadway, because that means you begin looking, as Joe Papp began looking almost against his will, for another chorus line, you know, for another Pirates of Benzance. Instead of doing the work that you really love and are passionate about, and if it's successful enough or has the kind of quality that 
a Broadway audiences will respond to, that's fine, but you haven't chosen it for that reason. And now I must say that more and more theaters are choosing their productions because they think they might go to Broadway, and they're accepting what is called enhancement money uh, from Broadway producers in order to try them out. And I think there are tax implications here. They're going to be investigated by the National Endowment for the Arts. There are confusions that the um, foundations are now beginning to look into. I think it's causing a bad situation. Since you bring it up, another institution that you certainly spoke of having differences with was, in fact, the NEA, that you didn't like where the NEA was going. What began, and you were certainly there at the time the the NEA began in terms of your work at Yale, um, to the culture wars and the NEA wars of the 80s and early 90s. Where do you think the NEA is today? And we should say that you mentioned your former student, Rocco Landisman, now running the NEA, also a commercial producer who would, in fact, find work at not-for-profits or, in some cases, bring work to not-for-profits. How does this all come together? Well, he, Rocco is very vocal about wanting a separation between the profit and the non-profit theater. He was vocal about that when he was producing, he was head producer of, of Drew Jamson. Uh, Rocco brought Big River to us as a play by a former student of mine, Bill Hauptman, it was an adaptation of Huckleberry Finn, which I liked very much, and um, I wanted to do it. And while we were, we chose it. Rocco said it. he thought it should have music. So I said, "Well, um, it could use music." Uh, he says, "I like Roger Miller." I said, "I never heard of him." <laughs> I said, "But uh, on the other hand, I do know uh, James Taylor, and I know Carly Simon. They're friends of ours." from the vineyard and I asked them if they would write music for it and they were not available for it so Rocco then went out and spent a weekend with Roger Miller who was in a bit of a drugged funk at the time and got eight songs out of him which were quite brilliant and so we did those songs but never did I dream or or understand that Rocco wanted this as a uh, production uh, on Broadway even though that's where it eventually ended up, because uh, you know adaptations of Huckleberry Finn don't seem quite appropriate for Broadway. Hmm. Um, did, did that answer your question? Or? Well, I I asked it in too many parts, but where do you think, in the same way that I asked about the relationship with the not-for-profit and the commercial, where do you think the NEA is now? Not specifically because it's hired Rocco, but where does it fit in the life of American theater compared to where it was? some 45 years ago when it began. Bigger issues than the question of uh, Broadway and the non-profit theater are whether the NEA is going to function as a social agency or an artistic agency, cultural agency. These things have gotten mixed up because um, uh, if the, the government feels that it, one of its functions, if it's giving money to the arts, is to solve social problems. And... Um, I think there are enough social agencies in the government that you don't have to use the arts for this, that excellence should be the primary, if not the only, um, criterion for um, for grant giving. Uh, also, there is this bad um, tradition which started uh, with the Maplethorpe and Serrano scandals of no longer funding individual artists because they might be, you know, radical, they might be 
gay. They might be any number of things that are subversive, <laughs> subversive in some kind or other. And so you only you only fund the museums. You see that that would might do their work, or you only fund the theaters without funding the, the the playwright. And I think that's wrong. I think individuals should be supported by the National Endowment as well as institutions. So those things should change, and I think Rocco probably will want to change them. Have you had any conversations with your former student about this? Um, just on the subject of the profit and the nonprofit uh, uh, confusion, and uh, we did have a meeting at one of the foundations uh, involving a few artistic leaders, including Rocco, and uh, we aired these issues because they are issues that are disturbing the uh, foundations. Let's come back to the art at ART. One thing that struck me, which I didn't see during the Yale years, is that you began doing adaptations and even writing plays. Had you been writing at Yale for the stage? No. Um, I had begun as a playwright when I was 20. Um, I can't say I ever finished a play. I finished scenes. This is the time of typewriters, and uh, I couldn't soil a page with bad writing. Computers changed my whole attitude towards playwriting because there was nothing permanent about writing on a computer. It's a perfect medium for revision. So uh, I did begin doing adaptations, I think probably when I went to uh, the ART, and it was to save money, on the you know uh, the you didn't money. have to use the pre-existing translation and pay royalties exactly. to somebody who hadn't actually written the play and we didn't have to commission a, uh, a translation or an adaptation so I did it I did about I don't know how many eight or ten of them um, and gradually those evolved into more than adaptations I wrote a piece called Three Farces in a Funeral which was uh, three Chekhov farces that were about marriage and were connected to with his letters to his wife-to-be, Olga Knipper, uh, and ended with his death in Germany. Now, the, the play about his death in Germany was written by me. The others were adaptations of his farces, and so I kind of molded this into a play. And then I got interested in Shakespeare, and uh, I've written now three plays about Shakespeare. Uh, one is called The uh, English Channel, uh, which takes the fanciful idea that Shakespeare got his play ideas from the ghost of Christopher Marlowe, who died in 1593. The second was called Mortal Terror, uh, and is about the relationship uh, of the gunpowder plot and uh, its similarities to our 9-11, with the uh, Twin Towers going down at Parliament. And the third is called The Last Will. I just finished that recently, and that's about Shakespeare's return to Stratford and his writing his wife out of his will, hmm. giving her his second best bed, and why. So these uh, three plays, and uh, they're getting productions, and uh, I've enjoyed very much uh, the writing of them. How does Bob Brustein, the critic, view Bob Brustein, the playwright? Very sternly, um, because he, he continues to use his computer for the beautiful function of revision. I never really do finish with a play. You never write a play, you just continue to rewrite it. Uh, so I am continuing to rewrite my plays. You have had the opportunity to see both of the institutions you created grow and flourish and change after you departed. Uh, there have been 
Yale is now in its third artistic director, I believe. James Bundy, who was a student of mine at Harvard. Mm -hmm. Um, And now Diane Paulus is at ART. How do you view where those institutions are now compared to where they were when you started them? And, And are you willing to talk about whether they are still the institution that you wanted them to be? I I think that's a tough question, and um, uh, of course, no artistic director ever believes that his successor or her successor is is going to be the same uh, or have the same aesthetic as he did, and uh, nor should they. Every uh, new artistic director should have his or her own particular vision and follow it. Uh, That's what gives it the energy. I mean, the real issue is whether the original idea has been so, how, how subverted it, it has been how totally subverted it's been or partially subverted or not subverted at all so um, you know I suppose Tyrone Guthrie would come back from the grave and be unhappy with what's happened to the Guthrie and Bill Ball would come back and be unhappy with ha- what's happened from the American Conservatory Theater and so forth so every artistic director in his bones or her bones really feels that um some original vision is not the same or if it were you'd still be running it so I see it from both sides I see it from you know the point of view of the artistic director who's disappointed and I see it from the point of view of the artistic director who should not be disappointed because everyone has a singular vision you did use your critical post uh, at one time to talk about Lloyd Richards' Yale rep in relation to Bob Brewstein's Yale rep, particularly in regard to the commercial question, um, because of Yale's active involvement in producing August Wilson's plays on Broadway. In retrospect, is that something that you feel was the right move, or... Or is it something that that you might handle differently now with more distance? Because you were only seven or eight years out of Yale when you did that. I wish someone else had done it, but I think it had to be done. Uh, What was happening was just what we've been talking about, a a play which was originated in a non-profit theater, then went to another non-profit theater, then went to another non-profit theater, then went to another non-profit theater, and ultimately ended up on Broadway. So what we were getting was a recapitulation of a system that the non-profit theater was supposed to have changed, namely the tryout system, where uh, you do pre-Broadway tryouts uh, in one city after another until it's good enough to go to Broadway. I thought that was an undermine the whole, you know, Ideal of the nonprofit theater, and no one was saying it, so I said it. I, I was probably the last person in the world that should have said it, and I admit that. Uh, and uh, but I'm not sorry I did. You also ended up voicing opinions about August Wilson's work, which was coming out of Yale at that time specifically, and the relationship of his plays and what was called the Black Theater and its relationship to theater as a whole in America. This culminated in a debate at Town Hall a number of years ago. Was that 
a byproduct of your opinions being misunderstood or misrepresented? Let me say that debate is, is going to be published in a new book of mine. I want to give a little commercial here called Rants and Raves. It'll be coming out, I, I hope, very soon uh, by Smith and Krauss. Um, no, I didn't think I was misunderstood. Uh, I think we, August and I, simply had a difference of opinion. August did not believe in what we call non-traditional casting. He believed that black actors should only play black roles in plays written by black playwrights. I thought that uh, would have obviated the great performances of Morgan Freeman, of Denzel Washington, of you know, uh, of any number of, of, of James Earl Jones, of any number of really terrific black actors who have done Shakespeare, for example, or Chekhov, and done them very well. And um, uh, I felt that the only criterion, uh, as far as performance is concerned, would be your excellence as an actor, not your color. And uh, I thought this was a form of separatism that those of us in the civil rights movement had fought very hard to get rid of, and now it was coming from from the other side instead of from the white side it was coming from the black side so I, I debated him on that and uh, uh, I still feel strongly about that position and I'm not sorry the debate took place sitting here today uh, in your very spare and as you admitted rarely used office at Suffolk University here in Boston where you are a distinguished Artist in residence, distinguished uh, fellow. What am I? I'm a distinguished scholar in residence. Distinguished scholar in <laughs> yes, residence. Yes. Um, how are you filling your time um, since departing from ART? You are writing plays. You are writing books. Um, you say you haven't written a review since 2001. Um, are there still things? I know we're, we're talking to you after a long and distinguished career, but are there still things you'd like to get to in the theater? Well, I'm teaching. Um, I'm teaching here at Suffolk. I'm also teaching at the ART. I teach dramaturgs, a course in history of criticism, and a course in history of the resident theater, the very thing we've been talking about. Um, I'm writing plays and writing them with great pleasure, and I hope I'll continue to write plays. And... Um, the things I enjoy most, I think, is, is getting into another period and writing in that period hmm. and in the voice of, of perhaps of another playwright, um, that, which is what I did with the Shakespeare plays. Um, I tried to find a contemporary way of dealing with the Elizabethan period hmm. in those plays. But you say the voice of another playwright, other than Robert Brewstein? William Shakespeare. To write in what you think his voice would be today? Um no, that's no. Okay. Uh, that I could never pretend to do. But I tried to get into his mind, and, and um, I would wake up, actually, with whole scenes composed, as if he had, I dreamed him. Uh, it's a very weird thing to say. Hmm. But I was haunted by him, and I and, uh, like to feel as though his ghost was in me uh, for a little while there. And um, it's for others to say when they see this play, but I think uh, it's not an archaic style. It's not an Elizabethan style, but um, it's a style that uh, that I think recalls Shakespeare. After all, I've been teaching him all these years, and uh, uh, he's in my bones. You know, he's in the bones of everybody who teaches him. Mm-hmm. And looking back 
is there a particular legacy that you hope you have left or created since the institutions themselves stand, but they're not exactly the institutions as they were. Um, what do you think uh, Bob Brewstein's greatest achievements have been? I think if I can boast about my legacies, they, they will be people. I'm most proud of the people that I have uh, helped to develop and given opportunities to. Uh, they are productions. Productions are ephemeral, though. They come and go. David Nam called them ephemera, ephemera, you know, stuff that doesn't really uh, last. But uh, insofar as I was able to give a, a play its first performance, I still take pleasure in that. Um, and um, I take pleasure in the notion of, a, of an institution, however different it may be from what I had in mind when it was first developed. And uh, I take pleasure in my own work. I'm, uh, I'm not a modest man. Uh, I hope I don't boast a lot, but I enjoy what I've done. I enjoy reading my own work which most people don't. They see all the errors in them. I, I can't. I look at it and I say, could I have done that? Where did that come from? You know, that's not me, but nevertheless, there it is. Are you surprised sometimes when you go back and see very, what you said? Very surprised. Hmm. Um, and uh, I feel as though it's somebody else speaking. I look at it as if it's somebody else speaking. And sometimes, you know, I come across something and I say, how could I ever have thought that? And I was absolutely wrong about this. I've been wrong any number of times, but I hope I was wrong in an eloquent and amusing way. <laughs> well, I want to say two things before we close, which is, first of all, inevitably, given your distinguished career, an hour hardly does it justice, but fortunately, there are many volumes of books that you have written uh, about your own work and about theater. I was particularly charmed by Letters to a Young Actor, which I had not known of uh, before I began researching this. So I commend those books to those who found this interview interesting. It is only the tip of the iceberg. And secondly, as someone who grew up in New Haven, Connecticut, during your tenure as the head of the Yale School of Drama and the Yale Repertory Theater, thank you for introducing me to so much of what theater could be. Can I say one more thing? You may. I left out one other great satisfaction to me is people like yourself who come by and say I remember this particular production with affection it, it helped to change my view of things that's very satisfying to me well it's been satisfying to me as well Bob Brewstein thank you so much for being with us today on Downstage Center and thank you Post-production for this edition of Downstage Center is by Chad Bernhard. Our researcher is Craig Thompson. Our director of web development is Rob Perry. And our producer is Gail Yankosik. Downstage Center is produced with the cooperation of CUNY TV and the CUNY Graduate School of Journalism. Today's program was recorded on the campus of Suffolk University in Boston. Along with this program, all of the educational and media work of the American Theatre Wing is available online, on demand, for free, from our website, americantheaterwing.org. You can follow the ATW on Twitter as The Wing, and follow me as well as H.E. Sherman. You can also declare yourself as one of our fans on Facebook at The American Theatre Wing, and also find more material on our YouTube channel. 
Please remember that the American Theatre Wing is a not-for-profit organization, so if you're a regular listener to or viewer of Wing programs, we hope you'll consider giving us support to sustain our work. Just visit our website and click on Support ATW. For Downstage Center in the American Theatre Wing, I'm Howard Sherman. Thanks for listening, and no matter where you live, I hope we'll see you at the theatre.